0: So, we have brought back one of the viewers' all-time favourites. Whether it's from the royal family or the strange death of Dr. Kelly. Norman Baker's videos. You guys are just absolutely all over them. We uh, first introduced you to Norman on this channel back when we did a Sonia and Sean last year And so many people have just been saying, get him back on, get him back on. Some of you saw him on Atwood Unleashed, but we're here in the Liverpool studio now. We're going to do a more prolonged interview. And of course, we're going to start out with the Royal Family, but we have got a whole range of other subjects to discuss as well. So, huge thank you for coming back, Norman. Great pleasure, John. <laughs> we've got a little bit of your oeuvre in the room today. Yeah. Um, and how many books have you got out now? That's a third. That's
1: That's a third, a third one out. It's just been. Um, it's just come out in paperback. Hardcover yeah. was last year, and it's also just been released in the states. Okay. As well as being an audiobook and all that
0: sort of stuff. Because we've got a big American audience. So we'll, the links will be in the description box for the books, and um, any other Norman's social links will be down there as well. So. I'm about a third of the way through this right now. It's called "And what Do you and what Do you Do?" Huh. Um, the Royal Family Book." And I'm going to let's just jump ahead to the, to the thing that's the most interesting subject on this channel people have expressed interest in. There's a chapter here called "The Grand Old Duke of Slees." What's that one about? I think most of your viewers should probably guess <laughs> what
1: it's about. <laughs> um, it's about Prince Andrew
2: um,
1: and his various mm. attempts to mm. be a member of the Royal Family and how they've all been deeply embarrassing, both for him and for the Royal Family and indeed for the UK. And it's not just his association with Jeffrey Epstein, which of course is coming back to haunt him. Um, and uh, the American legal system is still, I think, very keen to taught to him to have him help with their inquiries as we put it over here in this country (laughs) Uh, but it's also the way he conducted himself as a trade envoy for the UK Um, the relationships he built up with dubious figures across the world and the money that appears to have flowed into his bank account from we don't quite know where so all those things I think uh, suggest that uh, Prince Andrew deserves that title, as indeed uh, he does for the way he treated his own star, which is quite shameful.
0: Yeah, and people have seen our interview with Paul Page on this channel and Andrew just effing and blinding and sending Ghislaine Maxwell through without the proper security protocol and stuff like that. So, how do you measure then his finances? He was getting
1: £249,000 a year from the Queen as part of the money from the Duchy of Lancaster. So officially, this is one of the royal myths, it doesn't cost us anything, it comes from her private income. Well, her private income, first of all, is a question of whether the Duchy of Lancaster money should be deemed private or public anyway. But even if you take it as private, she offsets it against tax. So we end up paying out of the public purse Mm. for Prince Andrew anyway. Mm. But secondly, uh, he had £20,000 from his naval pension, which was duly properly earned for his time as a helicopter pilot in the Falklands, where he behaved quite bravely, I think. But £269,000 a year, which is a lot of money for most people, uh, doesn't enable him to find enough money to spend millions in refurbishing a property in Windsor Great Park. Or even more, £15 million, I think it was, to buy a Swiss chalet in Verbier. Now, um, we'll have to ask where that money has come from. And if you look at his property deals, which of course were not public, were hidden, and it took investigative journalists to dig into them take his house, which was given to him and Fergie when they married by the Queen. Uh, this ghastly building, which we'd never got planning permission for anybody else, but he got planning permission for this uh, esteemed site. This building went up. It was like a kind of Tesco's without a toy-telling clock on top, <laughs> that one. Um, it, was, it was there. And, of course, when he and Fergie split up, they were going to sell this building. Well, it was on the market for uh, 12 million pounds. If you got £12 million, you would not buy that building. I mean, you really wouldn't, because why would you spend money like that on? You can get a few castles for that. (laughs) So uh, no one was interested in buying it. When he was abroad as a trade envoy, he would hawk it around to various places. Um, You know, here's here's some British trade for you to do. And by the way, here's this house I'm selling, which nobody wanted to buy. Well, suddenly it got sold. Um, And because of some diligent journalism from the Sunday Times, actually, we found out not only had it been sold to uh, a very prominent person in Kazakhstan, uh, who was, um, I think, widely regarded as having a, of a dubious nature, but also it was sold for £15 million, pounds, £3 million pounds over the asking price. Now, I don't believe that most people would offer £3 million above the asking price, not least for a property that had been sitting on the market for quite a long time and not selling. One would have offered considerably less than that. But 15 million pounds was offered for it. And then when the building was sold, it sat there empty for several years and then was then demolished, never having been lived in by the person who bought it. So you have to ask yourself, why would that person pay 15 million pounds for that property? Was this person mentally deficient? (laughs) Or is there some other reason why he overpaid Andrew for that money for that house? Some kind of backsheesh? Well, people can reach their own conclusions, but I would suggest that um, that was some way of passing money to Andrew, which otherwise wouldn't have appeared. The whole thing was shrouded in mystery, and it was only, again, as I say, due to the Sunday Times that uh, the dance of the seven veils, the veil after veil after veil, was uncovered, and it was all traced back to this Kazakhstan person.
0: Wasn't Fergie recorded, at some point in time, charging people to broker access to Andrew?
1: Yes, there was a, she was subject to a sting um, by a News of the World journalist who, who made a point of uh, uh, undertaking stings with members of the royal family very engagingly from my point of view. <laughs> and, and she was uh, offering, effectively, half a million pounds for access to Andrew um, and, in fact, was handed over money. Uh, and captured on film, uh, receiving some money as a deposit. I think from memory, I think it was in the book somewhere, I think it was £40,000 or thereabouts as a deposit. Anyway, um, uh, the question really was um, whether she was uh, acting with Andrew's knowledge in doing that. Um, The words she used to the journalist, fake journalist, um, who was uh, allegedly, well, real journalist, but fake businessman, who was allegedly going to hand over the money, uh implied that Andrew had uh suggested this figure. But we don't know if that's true or whether she was playing it up. Either way it was pretty seedy.
0: Half a million pounds just to access Andrew. I think some of us would pay half a million pounds not to meet Andrew personally. <laughs> <laughs> so to put that kind of money up then what benefit are they going to get when they do finally access Andrew? Well, you just wonder, because uh, what we do know
1: is one of the deals that Andrew was interested in, again, in, in a rather dodgy part of the world, was involved in, in, in negotiating a contract. And, and he was to receive 1% of the contract, which was going to be just over £3 million. And all he had to do for that was write a couple of emails. Uh, this only came to light because the contract fell through because uh, the workers who were going to be uh, employed on site uh took exception to some of their conditions i think and then they're getting shot by soldiers shot dead by soldiers and the whole thing was was called off so he lost three million pounds but you know these sorts of deals these are the ones we know about this is where the light has shone and we can find out what's happened
0: uh and if there were other deals we don't know about them so you pay fergie half a million then andrew is going to come into play if you're in the realm of multi-million pound contracts like arms um, contracts perhaps would that be a, an avenue well we don't know but what we do know is he spent a great deal of time as
1: trade envoy uh deciding his own itinerary he didn't go where the foreign office told him all the time he often went places uh, on his own but still maintained he was acting for this country and i did an analysis it's in the book of um of where he'd been between about i think from memory 2003 2008 that sort of period because i asked some parliamentary questions at the time when i was an mp to establish this and what you find out that he was going back to the same places again and again and again. Uh, Bahrain, typically, these sorts of places in the Middle East. And you have to ask yourself, why would somebody, if they're acting for the interest of the UK, continually go back to the same place again and again and again? You know, you won't find many visits he undertook to, I don't know, Sweden or Germany (laughs) or America or any of the Western democracies. They were all rather dodgy places you went to with autocrats, including some people who were involved in allegedly fixing elections, including people who were alleged in torture of opponents. These are the kind of people he was
0: meeting. All right, so you've set the table there for a world of, you know, big money. And the mainstream media is telling us that Epstein paid off a debt for Fergie for $15,000. Yeah. Which well, just, pounds, I think, but yeah. Which just seems completely insignificant that amount of money is there more to that then
1: well we don't know i mean i think fergie was um incapable of running her own finances she probably still is <laughs> and, and what she did was <laughs> as, as far as i can see looking at it objectively was well, she would spend whatever she wanted to spend or whatever she wanted to spend it on and then where afterwards where the money was coming from there was no account at budgeting or housekeeping as it were so she would end up millions of pounds in debt really quite unnecessarily and then scrabble around for ways of um, filling the gap. I mean, you know, some of these were legitimate. Well, these allegedly legitimate. There was that book about the helicopter, um, which um, i forgot what the name of the helicopter was now. Sounds like it should be he- Hector the helicopter. I'm sure it wasn't Hector the helicopter, <laughs> but whatever it was called. I but I mean, I, that's a legitimate way of raising money, I suppose. Except to say that um, um, I, when I was when I looked at this book of hers, um, it reminded me of something, and I stretched back to my bookshelf and looked at this book on my bookshelf, I'd not seen for decades, which was one of the first books my father ever gave to, me, gave to me when I was about five years old. And I sort of kept it for sentimental reasons, because it's the first thing I remember him giving me. There's a book called Tommy the Tugboat. And it, it, uh, it you yeah, know, no doubt constantly, born an amazing striking resemblance to this book, <laughs> Fergie, has allegedly written. <laughs> anyway, so there's, there's a way she raised money like that, or engaging with Weight Watchers in the U.S., um, uh, I don't know she a pr- promoting good diet, sort of House of Orange type thing, perhaps. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, so she was doing that. But beyond that, um, she was always short of money, so um, they would scrabble around trying to find money. And obviously, Epstein, no doubt, regarded it as a good investment to give fifteen thousand pounds of nothing to him <laughs> in order to get an Andrews good books.
0: So, I'm, I've been watching The Crown. I, try, I wanted to get them all out of the way before I, I saw you, but I didn't, I'm only on about five or six. It shows how Princess Di comes into the family. How did Fergie come into the royal family? Well, I mean, she, she was around, and, and uh, I don't know,
1: Andrew her in suppose, was the obvious answer. But the, but the fact is that um, the royal family doesn't like strong females. The royal family is very, very traditional in a way that I think most would find... Um, Almost unbelievable. We haven't really moved on for centuries. I mean, that's not an exaggeration. they really haven't. The imperial royal families of Europe have all gone. You know, the Habsburg Empire in Austria, the, the German Emperor, um, the French dynasty. You know, uh, you know Louis XIV and all that lot. They've all gone. The Russian Tsar. The only imperial one that's left is our one, because the other monarchies in Europe, the the Bellenlux countries or the Scandinavian countries, are quite different monarchies, are very scaled down, are much cheaper, and they take an oath to the constitution, they take an oath to democracy, here we have to take an oath to them in this country. So the royal family hasn't really moved on in this country for a very long time, and part of that mentality is, is to see women in a subsidiary role in a way that I personally find quite offensive. You know, women should be uh, secondary. Diana was not supposed to speak in public. Uh, I think in the first three or four years, she uttered 500 words in public. That's all she was allowed to do. Her job was to stand there supporting her husband, simpering and looking supportive. And, you know, that's very insulting because Diana was actually a very intelligent and interesting woman. But they didn't like that. Um, They want women to conform to wear the right colour nail varnish to cross their legs uh, in interviews in a particular way, to wear particular colours when they're dressed, and so on. This is what they want them to do. I mean, don't subject men to the same uh, strictures, but that's how they treat women. And so Diana railed against this, naturally. Fergie, to be fair to her, railed against it in, in different ways. And then we've seen Meghan rail against it. Uh, Meghan's an intelligent woman. I mean, whatever you think about Harry and Meghan, she is an intelligent woman, and uh, and she's been subject to... You know, attempts to say she'll be she'll be made to fit this mould, you know, and well, you know, she'll be trained to be a, a royal female. This is this is a mentality they've got, and you can see that um, you know Kate is by and large conformed, uh, and Meghan didn't, and that's the difference between the two of them.
0: So, to be eligible to date a royal, do you have to be from a family of a certain pedigree? You had to be until 1923, I think it was.
1: You had to come from another royal family, I mean it was all inter mm-hmm. interrelated. You had to marry someone who was descended from the German Emperor or the Austrian emperor or whatever it happened to be. Well, of course, they all disappeared a lot of them disappeared in the first world war, so that no longer no longer became tenable and the first woman not to be from that lineage was the queen mother as a matter of fact. but having said that um you know, they don 't come from talks death at the housing estates around here <laughs> you know, I mean they come from, they come from money uh, and they come from a family that may have been around for a very long time with a with its own as you say pedigree yeah. so and they come from L's and that sort of thing you know l Spencer you know Diana's family and all that so they 're not poor and they come from a, they come from a rarefied stratum of society uh, and actually, some of the people who have come inside the fergies and the megans don 't come from there and that 's why the tensions been there and you know the royal family would do well to broaden its base rather than trying to maintain this ridiculous narrow aristocratic pedigree
0: was camilla within that pedigree oh yes yeah she was yeah so what precluded her then from being the marriage material that uh, charles well she was married for a start <laughs> 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 I mean, but, you
1: know, that's another thing. The men were expected to, almost expected to, certainly it was allowed, expected to have mistresses. Married it was, mistresses.
0: Wasn't that I mean, the advice, was, Dickie?
1: Yeah, the, the, the wife was there for the... For the Ceremonial purposes and to produce children, and in the meantime, there were some mistresses in the sight of some fun with. You know how that's how George IV behaved. It's how Edward
0: the Seventh behaved. It's how Charles was expected to behave. That's what they were grown up to do. So the Crown portrays Lord Mountbatten as kind of encouraging Charles in that direction. Yes. Do you think that's accurate?
1: Yes. I mean, why not? That's how the Royals have always behaved. This <laughs> is a an outdated attitude towards society,
0: towards women. But, you know, they are stuck in the past. This is part of the problem. They are stuck in the past. So look at what Charles did then. He he chose a married woman who was married to someone who worked for him. Charles... Doesn't that create a weird, like, situation in your mind? I'm having sex with this guy who works with me's wife. A normal person would be like... What's going on here? This is crazy town. Well, that's the, the other thing is the,
1: the terrible sense of entitlement which the royal family has. They can yeah. do what they want, and everybody else should just be, oh yes, sir, whatever it happens to be, and uh, whatever you want to do is right, sir. That's the kind of mentality that they have. I mean, Charles, for example, um, you know, is very happy to ring up and say, "Would you come round and advise me on my garden, or whatever happens he wants to say to them?" And when people come round, you know, th- there's no question of being paid they expected to give this for nothing. Actually, gratitude they've been asked to serve the royal family. And um, i forgotten who it was now. Again, it's in the book. I'm sorry, I have got all details in my head. Um, who sent a bill in for £1,000 for something. Well, they were, they were um, uh, you know, sent to the equivalent of out to Siberia. You know, the book they, the, they produced was relegated to the outside part of the house and they were never invited in again. You know, they, they expect everything for nothing, The royal family. Um, again, it's a story there of... Um, Um, I think it was Princess Michael of Kent I don't know if there's anything liable in case it was someone else I think it was Princess Michael of Kent (laughs) who who was going past a a jeweller's shop and saw an ivory figure in the window and quite liked it and went inside the shop and basically said hello I'm a member of the Royal Family I'd like that for nothing please that's what it came down to and you know they got it and and they got a a letter of thanks by way of return just demanding something for nothing I mean it's really outrageous behaviour But that sense of entitlement is there. And you can see some of them control it a bit. Um, You know, Charles, I think, uh, doesn't, I don't think. Uh, A lot of them don't. Um, And others perhaps do. But Andrew is the extreme version of a sense of entitlement. I will do what I want and you can, you know, put up with it. And I I have the right to be very rude to my servants. You know, Andrew, come back to him, you know, throw something down the floor, literally, and say to his police protection officer, and picked that up. That's what he did. <sighs> you know, the behaviour is just appalling. And <sighs> and then there was um, coming back to Andrew again. Um, you know, an example would be when he was in his um, four by four, got going through Windsor Great Park and came to the gates, and the automatic w- system wouldn't work and the gates wouldn't open. So anyone else would take a detour around, there were a couple of miles in his car, which he could have done to get to where he wanted to go. Andrew didn't. He just rammed and rammed the gates until they opened, cost £80,000 of damage, which, by the way, Crown Estate's property, which belongs to us, we, the taxpayer, picked up the bill for that. Um, and Graeme Smith from the Group Republic, amusingly to my mind anyway, called that Gate Gate,
0: that particular episode. So Charles is my... Um he's having an affair with a married woman who uh, the husband who works for him he simultaneously marries Princess Di yes Di dies and presently Charles is married to the woman he was having the affair with how did he get rid of her husband then to to enable that marriage well divorce I think um
1: (laughs) But, I mean, well, divorce, but, I mean, I not whether he did that or not. I'm Charles,
0: I'm marrying your wife, whether you like well, it or not. I, I want know. a divorce. I don't
1: know how that worked, but, I mean, <laughs> the, he ended up marrying her because she got divorced. But, I mean, you also got to bear in mind that Diane in that famous TV interview with Martin Bashir, which is now subject to some discussion within the BBC, um, you know, famously said, there were three people in our marriage. Um, and really, you know, Charles was cavorting with Camilla, ...you know, right up to the wedding day... ...and almost immediately afterwards... ...I mean, that was how it was... ...I mean, Camilla was the love of his life... ...I mean, which in one sense is quite romantic... ...but the trouble was... ...A, she was married... ...and B, it's hardly fair on Diana... ...to inflict that situation on her... ...so... ...but that's... ...you know, that was regarded as... ...presumably by Charles... ...as satisfactory behaviour...
0: It's got to be outrageous... ...for people watching The Crown... ...I had no idea how young she was... ...and how... Yeah. This, ...you know, she's throwing up in the toilet... Yeah. And, and then they re- they're saying that she's mentally ill, she's the one causing... to blame yeah. her for the symptoms? I know, that's right. And, and that's right, there
1: was a blame game going on. And there was a lot of nasty briefing depressed press to suggest she was mentally ill and so on. That was really
0: quite unpleasant. So, I've not got to it yet, then. How does the relationship start to break up? Maybe Charles it's and Diana. Diana and
1: Charles. Well, I mean, yeah. Diana knew about Camilla. And, uh, and, and also, I do think it was a very loving relationship and they didn't really get on very well um and she was forced to do things she didn't want to do like shut up in public and so on so i mean um i think what she got from the marriage was um not all the fripperies which charles wanted but she got from the marriage two boys um and that was what kept her there i think
0: so was she then demoted when they separated yes
1: i mean uh, yes quite quite uh again disgracefully um she became diana princess of wales and the HRH was taken away from her, which was just spiteful, actually, I think. You could have just left it with her, uh, because it wasn't her fault. The situation developed, as it did. But she had the HRH taken away. A spiteful move. And, of course, that's now relevant now, because we have to find out whether Harry has his HRH taken away or not, because he's effectively
0: stopped being a member of the royal family. In the comments, please put whether you would like Harry to lose his HRH, or Prince Andrew to lose his HRH. H-R-H. How was Diana's life after the split? Well, I mean, she lost her protection. Um, She was
1: given a settlement, financial settlement settlement from Charles, of course, which I think was reasonably generous. But she had um, um, obviously no income at that stage other than what she generated herself. She wasn't poor, both from the inheritance from Charles and also from her own family circumstances, so the money wasn't an issue. But, of course, she was then cast adrift she was subject to briefing uh anti-her by the palace in a shocking way so it was quite difficult i think and and also she wasn't quite independent i mean the fact that she wanted to associate with uh, with men who were heaven forbid not white and not from the narrow aristocratic band uh was something the palace found quite difficult had she gone off with you know Erl somebody or other, um or lord this or lord that and uh, Lord double double barrel of backwater it would have been all right <laughs> uh, but she didn't you know she went off with uh, Dodi Fiat who was a uh, son of an Egyptian
0: so the stories about multiple affairs she was having around that time yeah uh, is that exaggeration or well I, I don't
1: think it was I mean I don't know I mean but I mean I know the rumors and I know one of the people who uh, have been able to substantiate that so but I don't blame her for that I mean you
0: know, that's she was in a damaged state how did she meet Dodie? I don't know any answer to that. Do you know um, about the day of the accident? Do you know what happened there? Well, I know what's been reported. Yeah. Um, what 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 actually happened then? What well, was I, I don't.
1: Well, we don't know because it's I mean there are various rumours and various suggestions as to what happened. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, what I, my personal if I tried to, to make a guess, I would say it was a genuine accident. Um, but I also think she was being continually tailed by MR6 to find out what she was doing, right. um, and it may well be that the car was trying to escape the tail, and that might have been what was happening. Yeah. Um, I mean, MR6 and the Americans were very worried about her because she was a very, very popular international figure, and she was campaigning very successfully against landmines, which the American government was not happy about.
0: And those landmines were, like, blowing kids up and stuff.
1: Oh, landmines are, are are an appalling, indiscriminate weapon of war which should have no place in civilised society. Mm. I mean, war itself is pretty ghastly. But, you know, in a traditional war, if we put it that way, you know, the fighting the fighting at least contains the battlefield. Um, that changed the 20th century when the ability to drop bombs on cities was created, and now it's gone further. And the idea that there are still landmines around the place now that people are standing on and having limbs blown off today is quite awful the idea that people are still being poisoned in vietnam as a consequence of the americans Mm. using agent orange is quite awful so you know we do have to think about the consequences of of war and and i don't think people who authorize these things should be allowed to get off scot-free quite frankly these are crimes against humanity
0: it's collateral damage so going back to Andrew again then we saw the arrest of Ghislaine Maxwell yes we saw the arrest of Jean-Luc Brunel and both American and French authorities now are saying that they would like Andrew to give him information
1: yes will that ever be forthcoming well Andrew said on that famous um, car crash interview on the BBC that um he wanted to cooperate with the authorities well if he wants to cooperate with the authorities the question is why isn't he doing so and the other question, I suppose, which follows this is if, he, if his version of events is entirely correct, that he wasn't at this nightclub, he'd never met this woman, uh, Virginia Roberts, and so on, if that's all entirely correct, why doesn't he cooperate? Because he can clear his name. Um, there's a, 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 limit, a specific question about where he was on that night, when he said he was at the palace and they said he was at this nightclub, the Virginia Roberts said he was at this nightclub. Well, you know, the fact is that uh, he would have been accompanied ...by his police protection officers wherever he was... ...because that was the rule at the time with him. And the police keep records of this for 30, 40 years. So all he has to do... ...is ask the police to publish their log... ...to show where he was. That's all he has to do. So why hasn't he done it? Um, No, I've asked as a matter of fact... ...I've got an outstanding freedom of information request out... ...with the Metropolitan Police. They've refused it. (laughs) And it's now gone to appeal with the Information Commissioner. And, uh, you know, it is difficult to argue... There is a reason not to release information about an event which now took place 20 years ago. There could be no security implications of that. His uh, protection has, in fact, changed, to my belief, because he's no longer acting as a full member of the royal family anymore because of this business with Epstein. Um, so nothing nothing that is released about that evening, in my view, can compromise security. So there is absolutely no reason to refuse that information. So as I say again, if he's, if his story is correct, he should publish it himself. And if he's not publishing it, it should be released in response to my Freedom of Information request.
0: So, supporters of Andrew, some are saying that the photo with Virginia was doctored, and even if he had sex with a 17-year-old, the legal age is 16 in this country, so what? How would you respond to those people? Well, I mean, first of all, I don't believe the photo was doctored. Um, and there's no suggestion it
1: was and, and coming up saying his fingers look slightly different is a bit desperate ringing. Um You can doctor photos of course, but I don't believe this one was and there seems to be sufficient testament that um, To suggest it wasn't which is surrounding the the photo um, Secondly, I mean in terms of the age um, It may be legal to have sex with someone at that age in this country It wouldn't be legal in Florida at the time um, and, of course, there was a suggestion about meeting her in the States. And it's also not legal in this country if she had been trafficked, which is one suggestion. And we stress, of course, we not it's not been subject to a trial. We don't know this yet, but that's one suggestion. And, again, that's no doubt what the American legal authorities want to talk to him about. And it's in his interest, if he's, if he's completely in the clear, it is his interest to come clean and start making some cooperation, cooperative moves instead of hiding away. But you know, you know, none of his stories seem to me to be completely bizarre. I mean, we were told, for example, that he went to Epstein's place in uh, New York when he got this £50,000 for Fergie. Uh, and he went there to break off the relationship, he said. Well, I don't know about you, Sean, but if I want to break off a relationship with someone who I'm friends with, you either just stop talking to them, that's one option, or you bring them up and say, look, I've had enough of this, I'm not going to see you again. Or you send him a letter or something else. What you don't do is travel right across the Atlantic and stay with him for several days in order to break off a relationship. It just doesn't make any sense. And we do know an event was held in his honour while he was there. So it's a most curious way to end a relationship, I must say.
0: And another victim, survivor, has corroborated what Virginia said. And this other survivor is saying that Andrew groped her top with a spitting image puppet of himself yes is that a kind of um juvenile predatory behavior that you know he would stoop to well again
1: we don't know definitely that happened because but but certainly if you ask me is that typical of his behavior uh, or is it fit with his character then then yes it does yeah uh,
0: what kind of a future does he have then andrew with all of this on him
1: well if he's innocent and his story is as you said it is he needs to clear his own name Now, by cooperating with the American authorities, cooperating with the Metropolitan Police, publishing information which clears his name and proves definitively he's innocent. And then he can come back within the folds of the Royal Family. Uh, And the longer he refuses to cooperate, the more people will conclude, I'm afraid, that his story is not accurate. And I'm afraid there is a
0: smoking gun there. So the unpredictable wild card, perhaps, is what's going to happen with Ghislaine Maxwell? Well, indeed, because um, if she's got any sense, um
1: in her own interest as it will she'll spill the beans and get a reduced sentence that's what she needs to do for her own benefit um i mean why would she martyr herself and have a longer prison sentence to defend other people do you know how andrew and Ghislaine's relationship came about No, no i don't know how it came about but i do know that um he argues that um she was a contact rather than epstein
0: because some people are saying that the Black Book was actually hers and Epstein was the money guy and she had the contact.
1: Well, that may be true. We'll, we'll have to wait and see what the Americans produce in court. But, I mean, it's certainly the case that um, uh, she was intertwined with Epstein in more ways than one. And there was in no doubt in my mind that whatever he was doing, she would,
0: she would have been aware of. It's impossible to believe otherwise. So if Maxwell sings like a canary, is there any way in hell that the Queen is going to allow her favourite son to be extradited to face the U.S. authorities? Uh,
1: well, I mean, I, I don't know what the um, legal position of an extracting member of the royal family. I mean, he might be able to claim diplomatic immunity as a member of the royal family. That's not been tested. So that's one possibility. Um, I mean, there was that dreadful situation with that American diplomat's wife who drove on the wrong side of the road and killed someone over here, a young lad. And it has been
0: suggested we should do a swap. <laughs> she comes over here and he goes over there. Yeah, that's a good idea. Um... I think it's the head of the state of America, which would be the president, can allow Andrew to have diplomatic immunity and not to bring him over there.
1: Well, he's not a head of state. I mean, heads of states automatically have diplomatic immunity. Yeah. Um, and so probably do prime ministers, I don't know, heads of governments probably have diplomatic immunity.
0: Yeah.
1: Don't, and, and ambassadors will do. Mm-hmm. But whether a, a, a junior member of the royal family would have is
0: is a, is a moot point.
1: Do you imagine I don't think him fast bars
0: doing a mugshot and everything? Uh,
1: well, you never know. I mean, uh, <laughs> that would be an interesting outcome. But as I say, it's within his grasp if his story is correct to clear himself if he thinks he's been hard done by. And uh, yeah. the
0: longer he doesn't, the more suspicious people become. Do you think there's a risk that Maxwell might mysteriously die then to prevent such outcomes? Well, that's a very uh, wicked thought, isn't it, Sean? I mean, I have to say that, um, of course, Epstein did die in prison.
1: Yeah. And um, I did notice that um, the uh, the cameras that supposed to monitor him were singularly inefficient and not working for a period of time.
0: And the checks that should be made on him weren't made. And the, in the whole history of that jail since the 1970s when it was founded... Never have two guards fallen asleep simultaneously? <laughs>
1: no. I mean, um, I, again, one doesn't know exactly what happened there, but if I had to guess, I would say that I wouldn't say he was murdered. I don't think he was murdered, but what I do think it was he was probably suicidal and people turned a blind eye, and letting it run with it. yeah There's quite a few people who've been very happy that he's no longer able to give evidence, put it
0: that way. Yeah. So we've talked about who's at the top of the popularity and the bottom of the popularity. At this present day, who's at the top?
1: Well, the Queen, of course. Um, the Queen has been uh, is a loved figure. Um, uh, she's been she's believed to have done a a good job over the years. In many ways, she has. Um, she's never she's been quite careful not to publicise her views on particular issues, which is which is right for someone who's a head of state. In that situation, she has been diligent um, and. Um, I'm not saying she's perfect, but who is? But she has, I think, done her best to do her duty in her own terms. So I'll give her credit for that. And I think the the latent republicanism in the country, which is here, has been muted because people don't want to upset her personally. Um, I think it's a different situation when when Charles comes to the throne, um, assuming he does, because people will then say, well, you know, Charles is 70-odd, he's hardly a breath of fresh air, Um, he's got these weird views on things Uh, he's got a lot of uh, baggage around him not just with Diana but in some of his uh, financial arrangements as well and uh, do people actually want him as king and that's the time of danger for the royal family as to whether or not uh, that comes up or whether the kind of outpouring of grief for the Queen provides a cover for Charles to get his feet under the table before people start asking those questions So that's the interesting point, I think, in in time, that timeline. Do you think that the crown has enhanced the Queen's image? Probably, but um, as I was saying to you off-air beforehand, I don't like the crown as a concept because I think you should either have a documentary which tells you the truth and you've got confidence that this is what happened, or you have something completely fictional like West Wing or something like that, or Yesminster, which you know is false. Um, Mm. And this is kind of... This hybrid, we don't quite know whether it's fiction or whether it's fact, and personally, I don't find that sort of concept satisfactory in a television programme.
0: Do you think the portrayal of Margaret Thatcher and the Queen and this kind of rivalry for attention that's developing now? Maggie has just won the Falklands War. Was that accurate? Well, I think my hand about Mrs Thatcher was that she was. Um, both
1: annoyed, annoyed the Queen for, for behaving in a way that the Queen didn't like, but also, uh, at the same time, was obsequious. I mean, she couldn't, you know, she couldn't curtsy any lower. I mean, any lower, she'd have been a limbo dancer. <laughs> <when she curtsy. laughs> um, but, you know, but on the other hand, she would she would then um, behave as if the Queen had no right to know things. The Queen does have a right to know things in her constitution. She's got a right to be consulted to advise... And so on. That's her role. And in particular, there was there was a fallout over the invasion of uh, Grenada um, by the Americans, because of Grenada was, uh, I think, in the Commonwealth. It was the Queen very attached to the Commonwealth, attached to the Commonwealth. And uh, the story was she rang up Downing Street when she found out about Grenada, and said to Mrs Thatcher, "You know, I want you to come round here." And Mrs Thatcher said uh passed a message back, I'll come around when I've finished a cabinet meeting or something. And she got another phone call to the palace and said, you'll come around here now. Um, so she got summoned to the Buckingham Palace to explain why it was invaded. By the way, nobody knew where Grenada was. And, and uh, one of the uh, one of the um, side issues at the time was that when uh, Grenada was invaded, there was a whole lot of phone calls to Grenada television
0: to ask them whether Coronation Street was affected or not. <laughs> so it kind of these meetings then between the prime minister and the queen yes it seems that the queen has her input and helps shape history well the queen look the queen has been there since 1952 i mean
1: she was there, when we had an empire she was there when britain was a world power which it no longer is in the same way um she was there before you know the beatles before bill Haley. i mean that's how long she's been there so she got she's got a lot of knowledge over the years and she's built up a lot of knowledge and i think Prime Ministers have by large found it helpful to talk to her. She's been able to feedback her views. And the great thing about those meetings is that they are one to one. There's nobody else there. There's no retainers or advisors or anyone there. It's just two people who talk confidentially. And I think that's a good thing. And it means you can be frank with each other. Now, it's broken down now because we don't have personal meetings anymore. Um, so Boris is on the phone to the Queen. Oh. Well, of course... Because of the virus? Because of the virus. Oh. Now, what that means is that the Queen is not able to be frank because, first of all, I wouldn't trust Boris Johnson's father could throw him. Um, <laughs> but secondly, you know, we don't know who's listening. She doesn't know who's listening at the other end. So she's, I'm sure she's not able to be as frank as she would like to be at the moment.
0: So um, does the future of the royal family hinge on then in terms of popularity hinge on charles's kids well i mean it, it hinged on charles first of all because he's there in
1: the front line first um but the royal family if you look at who's now doing things i mean they're all getting on a bit i mean you know it's charles and it's anne um you know it, it's the queen herself um and the people actually Undertaking royal duties, including her cousins, Duke of Kent and people, they're all getting on a bit, and the only person, the only people who are in any way um, younger are William and Kate, and also Edward and Sophie are being brought into this, the into the mix. But I mean, you know, the, they're are a bit shorter people who are under fifty.
0: So the Qur'an portrays them to be like these bloodthirsty hunting uh, folks, and yet over the years royals have represented nature and wildlife charities is there a contradiction there
1: there's a contradiction which comes from an arrogance the arrogance comes from a sense of entitlement and the result is hypocrisy and if you believe it's okay to go and shoot animals hunt tigers and so on as philip has done and kill them for your own personal enjoyment i think that's personally barbaric but you know, that's a legitimate point of view to hold. What's not legitimate is to undertake mass killings of animals and then adopt a position as president of the World Wildlife Fund, which he did. It's also not right if you are patient of Mencap, as the Queen Mother was, to then leave your cousins rotting away in some council property with mental health conditions for years and do nothing about it. It's also not right if your Charles... Um, who continually talks about the environment and climate change, when I happen to think he's absolutely right and agree with him. It's not right to go to Cambridge to give a lecture about this poor old planet when you've taken a helicopter to get there (laughs) and to take a private jet across the world. You know, these these things are not not consistent with each other. And, you know, he undermines his own message if he believes that this is is really important, as I think he does. think he does believe climate change is important he must see, he's damaging the message by the way he travels himself Who were the cousins that the Queen Mother left rotting in a council? Oh these were people who were written off in 1941 or thereabouts um, and appeared in um, uh, de as dead they were written off literally Uh, but they they weren't dead, they were just they suddenly disappeared one day and ended up in this this kind of council place in Surrey and they were discovered in 1980 something by the Daily Mirror I think it was who put them on the front page of the Sun, one of those tabloids, put them on the front page. And, and, and the Queen, when I was asked about this, said, I had no idea they were there. Well, first of all, how could you suddenly notice that, not notice that your relatives had disappeared <laughs> and not ask any questions <laughs> about it? 40 years mm. of disappearance. And then secondly, having been told by the mm. tabloids they were there, why didn't she do anything about it? Why didn't you say, well, as patient of Mencap, I feel deeply mm. sorry about this. I'm going to sort this out. No, she just left them there. She left them there to rot for another 20-odd years with no support, no financial help. And the taxpayer was even paying for their underwear. Nothing came from the royal family at all for these people. But this is a, another royal trait going back centuries. If people are embarrassing, they're locked away. They're locked away and literally the key's kind of thrown away. Mm-hmm. And you look at um, George V, who had a, a son who was regarded as kind of, a, you know, a wonderful little boy and was given all sorts of um attention by the by the newspapers insofar as you were in those days in the early 20th century then he had an epileptic fit what happened he was locked away in a cottage on sandringham or barmore or sandringham i think somewhere with a with a nanny and a a kind of um person to control him when he had his fits he never saw his parents again he had left them there to die this is what they do He's saying the queen mum had a machiavellian streak i don't know machiavellian or just cruel but i mean the the way she didn't respond to her cousins is really quite shocking she wasn't short of money the queen mother i mean she was worth a fortune she could have easily given them a comfortable life she
0: didn't she chose not to do so so they are worth absolute fortunes and there's a public image and then there's the royal family plc so everything from rents on lands to coins dropping into parking machines is that true it's like a business it is a business
1: i mean it's a business where you have to ask yourself why they're worth so much money they haven't won a lottery have they um and they haven't earned it uh, but they're worth billions the queen's worth billions where does it come from because up to a certain point in the past 1760 um uh, or slightly before I think it wasn't legal for the for the royal family to have or the monarch to have money because the monarch was the embodiment of the state and they didn't have a private income and now they're worth billions where's that all come from? it's come from um, either gifts which haven't been properly registered by the way or it's come from tax breaks or some other source of money which hasn't been earned in a way that you and I would regard uh, as normal way of earning money Uh, It's come from, often, a taxpayer. Let's take Balmoral and Sandringham, for example, two houses, huge estates, actually, rather than houses, huge estates which, we are told, are private estates. Private estates, mark you, which belong to the Queen personally, not to the nation. Now, where do they come from? They come from Victoria's time, because Albert, Victoria's husband, went to the government and said, basically, we can't make ends meet. You need to increase the amount of money civilist at the time which you are giving to Queen Victoria to enable her to do her duties. I mean, that was rubbish. She'd had enough money. So the extra money that Parliament gave her she just used to buy these houses. So Parliament was told this is for her duties. It was actually used to buy houses. Now, I was in Parliament when we dealt with MPs' expenses. MPs spending money, public money on duck houses and Clearing moats and everything else. Yeah, this is no different. This is the whole Family fiddling their expenses. That's what it comes down to.
0: <laughs> so, are you saying then that the billions that the Queen is presently worth, she could just liquidate that and take it off and buy her own island and live happily ever after? That's her private money now. It's just her private money, unless,
1: unless the government of the day decided to claw it back. But let's, let's take one example investment, tax, investment income taxation. Uh, this is a huge amount of money for the exchequer um, and a quite high tax rate. Now, in 1952, when the Queen came to the throne, Winston Churchill, who was a prime minister, decided that he wanted to give the young Queen a leg up financially. So she was exempt from income tax and exempt from investment income taxation as well. Um, Taxation had been paid, by the way. Income tax had been paid by monarchs in the past. This hasn't been always the case. This is a 20th century innovation, um, by the way, to exempt the Queen from income tax. And for 40 years, that carried on. Now, the Mail, the Daily Mail, in about 2001, calculated that the Exchequer had lost around £800 million simply from the the exemption on investment income taxation. just that one thing. That's money that should have come to the Treasury and didn't. When a member of the royal family dies, like the Queen Mother, they pay no death duties. Why don't they pay death duties? Um, we've lost probably £25 million in death duties when the Queen Mother died. So they are given tax breaks, which are not open to anyone else in this country. And that's one
0: of the reasons they've got so much money. So these schemes then, that Andrew's involved in, these financial schemes, that money then just goes to him... And that's how he's able to buy this chalet in Verbia.
1: Well, presumably so. But I, I think the attitude that the royal family have is that we will find ways of securing money. The fact that nobody else can do this is neither here nor there. We are entitled to it. We are the royal family. That's the mindset.
0: On the subject of money, then, you've got a chapter in And What Do You Do titled The Royal Mint. And what do you do? <laughs> yes. What's the royal mint chapter about then?
1: Well, the Royal Mint chapters about money, as you, as you imagine. But yeah. there is an old saying by, I think, William Cobbett, which is this. You can tell a lot lots about a country that's got a Royal Mint and a national debt.
0: <laughs> it's a licence to print money is, is the impression I'm getting from well, speaking to it you. it is.
1: It is. Um, but, you know, I mean, to be fair to the Royal Family, if you like, governments have agreed this. Governments have authorised these tax breaks. And Parliament has failed to hold them to account.
0: What do you think of the Royal Honour System then and people who've refused titles? Well, your
1: Honour System, of course, costs nothing and the Queen sits at the top of the Honour System. So this is this is just handing out gongs for, um, in many cases, for favours. That's how it was originally. You know, if you go back centuries, then if you did something to please the King or the Queen, they would give you some land or make you a sir or something else. That mentality has come down... The generations now, there are many people who are honored in this country who have served our country well or deserve their honours so i don 't want to say anything against those people but it 's also an honor system which is used in a corrupt way to favor particular echelons of society and to favor uh, people in particular jobs whether it's civil servants or MPs or anything else so you know the the the, uh, the lady who stands on a, on a crossing on a a busy road for 45 years, 50 years, getting kids across the road in all weathers, might in 50 years' time get an MBE. You know, she's not going to get a knighthood or a damehood, um, but some other people will do for doing far less. So the honour system, uh, the idea that we should honour people is is a good idea, but the honour system as such is, is, uh, I'm afraid, corrupt. Um, And if you look at people who have given millions, millions, literally millions to the Tory party, or indeed the Labour party, they're in the House of Lords now. They've bought their peerages in many cases.
0: Just like buying a presidential pardon. Yes, like that. Earlier in The Crown, it showed the influence of the courtiers and the advisers. Yeah. Who is in charge? What is the power behind the throne? Well, the Queen's private secretary is, um, is quite powerful,
1: and there's, a, and there's a relationship between that person and, and that office, and the cabinet office in particular in government. Um, which deals with a lot of day-to-day business. Um, there's something called Queen's Consent, which I refer to the book. Again, no one knows about this. This is not the the, 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 the mechanical arrangement whereby the Queen um, gives royal assent. Royal assent's different. Royal assent at the end of a bill when the Queen just rubber stamps it, and there's no op- option but to rubber stamp it. Although legally she could refuse it, actually, but, I mean, she never does. But that's just a, 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 a rubber stamping exercise. It's Queen's Consent. And prince's consent for the Prince of Wales is entirely different, and Queen's consent can be withheld if the Queen's personal interests are affected by proposed legislation. Her personal interests. No, for example, I was in Parliament dealing with the Animal Welfare Bill in two thousand and six, which was uh, partly about enhancing the power of the RSPCA to enter land um, where they believed that animal. Uh, welfare was being compromised well as a result of representations from the palace the queen's private land was excluded from that why why should the queen have her private land excluded there's no evidence i don't think that there's there's animal welfare abuses going on there's no evidence of that but how dare she exempt herself from that how dare someone use legislation to benefit themselves you know, anyone else doing that would be called corruption. How much land do they own? Well, who knows? I mean, because there's no register of land in England. There's land registered in Scotland, but there's no register in England. And isn't that? But it's state, state land again, or is Well, that- there's there's two sorts of land. There's there's all sorts of land. There's, there's land which the Queen o- occupies for a proper constitutional purpose to discharge her duties. So, for example, Buckingham Palace or or, or Windsor Castle. Then there is land which she owned allegedly privately, which has actually been filched from her expenses, like Sandringham and and Barmoral over the years. And then there's land called the Crown Estates. Now, the Crown Estates sounds like it belongs to the Queen. It doesn't belong to the Queen, because in 1760, what happened when George III came to the throne was a deal was reached. George III had not enough money. And the deal reached at that point was that the so-called Crown Estates land which is now quite valuable, um, was given to Parliament as a public good. And in return, there was a creation of a civil list um, to give the monarch a regular income and also to remove from the monarch the requirement to fund, for example, the army or the civil service and so on. So that was a deal. It was actually quite a good deal for the monarch because the idea of the monarch funding the army and the civil service i mean they couldn't do it these days it'd be so enormous so it was actually a good deal for the monarch at the time um so the crown estates, land then became in my view should have been renamed as as public land or parliament land or whatever, whatever it was but it never was what kind of a king will charles make well i mean he's got any sense he will be a constitutional king i mean he spent his time uh voicing often quite controversial opinions feeling he has the right to write to ministers and not have those comments made public um and interfering which is often the spider letters uh in a, in a large number of ways which are way un, way beyond his constitutional position so he needs
0: to stop doing that let us go over then to some of the other subjects here I mean, one of our mission statements on this channel is to end the war on drugs and, you know, put those resources into going after predators, um, pedophiles, murderers, rapists, drug traffickers, people who are harming other people. The, the, the war on drugs has just led to this mass incarceration of the lowest hanging fruit to fill the private prisons. I saw the average arrest of a black kid, a Mexican kid with a bit of weed getting two to five year sentence. Absolutely sickening. Why do you think UK drug policy is wrong?
1: Well, I spent a year as Drugs Minister uh, in the Home Office in 2013 to 2014. And um, that was very instructive for me to see what was happening around the place. And what you realise, first of all, uh, one of the drugs which causes a major problem is alcohol. And yet we tolerate alcohol. It's to be found in every single... Respectable aristocratic dining room uh, or lounge or salon that you can imagine. And it's accepted part of society. And I'm not suggesting you should ban alcohol, but what I'm saying is that it causes a great deal of deaths. I remember asking a parliamentary question how many people die from tobacco each year? It was about 50,000. From alcohol was 20,000. And from cannabis was three, not 3,000, but three. So we have this curious arrangement whereby the drugs which are most damaging are the ones which society tolerates. Smoking has been made uh, less tolerated, it's become less tolerated, but alcohol still is. And, you know, alcohol, we know, uh, is is a massive cost to the health service. It's linked with um, domestic violence, I'm afraid.
0: It's Um, the number one drug in murder, violent crime and all sex crime? Yes, and yet we tolerate it. And what
1: I also saw from... from, um, My home office time, we carried out a study, which the Lib Dems insisted on starting, by the way, against Tory uh, protestations, to examine international drug policy. I wanted to have a comparison, and I produced that report and published it. And what that international comparison report showed, which Theresa May, my boss at the time, didn't like, uh, was that the countries which dealt with drugs as a health issue not only were they more humane, they actually reduced drug use. Um, and those countries which regarded it as a matter to lock people up and throw away the key, like Russia, for example, had very serious drug problems. Not least of all because they ended up sharing needles and so on. I mean, uh, they became uh, you know, places where drugs were, were endemic. So, you know, treating drugs as a health issue was how you should go. And Portugal was a great example, where if you look at what they were doing, which is eventually to decriminalise drugs and to get health professionals involved um not only more humane but they've reduced drug use significantly in portugal there's 20 years of that now to demonstrate that and also if you then have some i'm not you can't do this with every drug in my view like crack cocaine which is genuinely addictive but things like cannabis you can is to separate out uh, the drug user from the criminal because at the moment drug users have to go to criminal to get their drugs even people who will need cannabis for medicinal purposes until recently I had to go to the criminals to get their their drugs. And that's quite shocking. And they still are if they need THC oil. Yes, that's say? right. That's right, they do. And, and I was, and I, I took a big risk, I thought, political risk, because I went to the papers and said this is outrageous when I was drug minister and we should actually make cannabis available through the NHS. And because it's the clear evidence that it works in some cases. And I thought I was going to get roasted. Do you know what? The son, the male,
0: the papers you think would roast me, but actually came out and supported me. There's um, been a change, hasn't there? Like a tipping been. point, the old drug war dinosaur attitude, Nancy Reagan, versus, you know, people can see the facts. It's an iron law of economics. If you make something illegal that is a worthless plant, yes, and it becomes more valuable than gold... You're giving the cartels and criminal organisations yes. the biggest opportunity in the history of the world to make record profits, and that's what's happened? Well, it happened with prohibition of
1: alcohol in the States in the 1920s. Yeah. So, I mean, yes, the lessons are, are very clear. And I think that we've now got to the stage where most of the population accepts that point of view. Um, many MPs accept that point of view, but the government won't. And the government won't because they're hidebound by this, as you call, Nancy reagan attitude towards drugs. And the Labour Party to be uh, who's be ashamed of themselves, frankly, are worried. If they say what they believe to be true, they will be seen as quote soft on drugs and lose votes. That's why they don't do it. It's going to reverse
0: it. at some point, I think, because the tipping point now is just spreading everywhere, and it's the young people. You know, from my talks in the schools, the young people really see the logic. of Yeah, bit. they do. It will, I'll tell you, what, it will reverse. It will reverse
1: with money, where where you get some some commercial interest. Who is probably happening in the states now? I'm not quite sure. Who find value in selling cannabis?
0: Yeah.
1: Um, it becomes a business, and they will go and lobby government and say, "You know, you're affecting business." That's when the Tories will change when business becomes involved. And the reason, of course, it hasn't happened before is because cannabis is a natural product for which it doesn't actually require any any treatment. It's just there. Uh, it doesn't require a chemical process. It doesn't require uh, added value for the manufacturer. It's just there, like a herb. Uh, and that's why it's probably suffered, because people haven't seen the way of making money out of it.
0: Well, Queen Victoria's doctor said it was the most medicinal plant in the world. And then um, it was the early pharmaceutical societies in California said that, that we can't have people growing free medicine in their own backyards. No, well,
1: that, that's one of the reasons we've seen in the EU, actually, um, clamping down on herbal medicine. Um, I've got friends, one of my exes is a, is a herbalist, I happen to think she's doing a good job. Uh, and uh, But of course, you know, the, the idea of just taking something from the in of nature and giving it to someone, you know, where would that lead to pharmaceutical companies? So there's a great deal of interest in not providing free medicine, in not providing preventative medicine. We could do a great deal more in this country and across the world, actually, by investing in preventative medicine rather than trying to deal with problems that have arisen subsequently. So we have seen
0: huge corporations in America take stakes in cannabis companies yes. we saw um chronos and we saw canopy grove and they were the, the investors were beer companies and cigarette companies yes. so it seems what you described Then when the big money starts to come in and the lobbying that will change bribery, things that, that yeah. will change things but the feds have maintained weed as a schedule one substance yes more harmful than crystal meth and cocaine with no medicinal value whatsoever <laughs> well
1: i know well i mean that will have to change because it's not based in reality and, 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 the and the little
0: kids with the seizures and everything that the
1: I know yeah. I know it 's not fair, but also you know we had our problem comes from one thousand nine hundred and seventy one largely the so called misuse of drugs act one thousand nine hundred and seventy one and we had the so called swing sixties We then had a swinging seventies because what was what, what happened then was that the establishment capital E thought, oh my God, society's getting out of control, free love, drugs." rock and roll music whatever it happened to be you know what's happening you know we're Chopin you know we're losing out on all this thing and and then there was a kind of counter-revolution a kind of reaction against that well it didn't help it didn't help them or society because for example in the 1960s heroin had been prescribed by doctors under proper circumstances for people who needed it and heroin uh, the problem with heroin as you all know Sean is is not it's addictive in the sense that you have to eat, you have to have heroin, the same way, you have to eat something. But actually, you can live with it. You know, you can live with it. When I was in Denmark uh, as drugs minister, I saw people coming in with a, you know, equivalent of city suits and briefcases, and umbrellas equivalent, shooting up in the shooting gallery and going to work. So, you know, so you could carry out a normal normal day's work. But the amount of heroin addiction in this country multiplied enormously after it was after the doctors were stopped from prescribing it in 1971, you know, that didn't help that made it far, far worse so we have to learn a lesson from history and people need to get rid of their prejudices and look at the facts, as in all all things actually, but particularly drug policy What do you have to say on flight (laughs) BA149? Here's another scandal, flight BA149 was the flight where um, British Airways flight which was off to Kuala Lumpur and had to refuel in kuwait and um, at the same time we they were it was known i think in in some circles that uh, saddam hussein was about to invade kuwait back in 1991 and uh, the british airways pilot and british airways kept saying to the government is it all right to take this flight and they said oh yes no problem at all you know we're okay so they touched down when they touched down this flight um the airport was deserted it was darkness All other flights from all other countries had stopped. And lo and behold, the aircraft was captured and the passengers were all taken hostage for months. Um, And you may remember this this ghastly image of um, Saddam Hussein passing this poor, terrified kid called Stuart something on the head. Uh, It's an image I'll never forget. Um, You know, it's kind of what he did with with, um, his hostages. Uh, Anyway, so was this a ghastly mistake? which is what we're told. No, it wasn't. How do I know? Because as an MP, I received a delegation from the SAS who came to see me with a signed affidavit telling me what happened. Signed affidavit. And what happened on that flight was that a a decision was taken to get these SAS guys into Kuwait. And the only way they could think of doing it, apparently, was to put them on this flight and make sure it touched down. And lo and behold, the SES guys, as soon as the touchdown, disappeared off the plane. So everybody else was effectively put in that situation in order to get the SES guys off the plane. I've got it there, a legal document. And I raised this with the minister, Jeff Hoon, um, in Parliament. Well, you know, he denied it all. But I I sent the affidavit. All he wanted to know from me, who signed the affidavit? That's all he was interested in. He wasn't interested in anything else. The French government, for example, has given compensation to the French passengers. The British government has given no compensation to the British passengers. That matter is still alive. Now, you can argue that in the interest of the country, it was right to put the plane down or not put the plane down. There are arguments on both sides. What there is no argument about, in my view, is that Parliament was misled, told a pack of lies about this flight, and no one has corrected it to this day, despite the SES coming out and saying what happened. So I think it's time for the government now to come clean about BA-149 and to pay compensation to those passengers who were deliberately endangered in order to get the SES off the plane.
0: Agreed. So people all over the country are getting sweated about the BBC TV licence, and I read that there's a record amount of women in prison because of non-payment of the TV license. You can watch videos on YouTube of these people coming from the BBC to people's homes. There's even tutorials, how you know, what to say to these people to get rid of them and stuff like that. Now, will the BBC get... It, it, it's lost its power, basically, to the Internet, because, you know, I, all I watch is Netflix and YouTube. I don't go on BBC iPlayer huh. or any of this other stuff. And here we've got can the BBC get back the backbone it had before 2003? Is that a reference then to pre Jimmy Savile scandal?
1: Yes, I mean, that's, that's two separate issues there, Sean. The first one being the license fee. Um, it, is, it is bizarre, really, that in this day and age we've got a license fee for the BBC and then we, had, we used to have dog licenses to you know, have a dog. And as you say, young people in particular say, why should I get a TV license, you know, to, to watch iPlayer? I mean, I can watch anything else. You know, I can watch Channel 4 on there. I can watch Sky on, on the internet. Why do watch BBC for? So they're losing a whole generation of viewers as a consequence of this. Now, the BBC needs to be funded, and I don't believe it should be thrown to the wolves and subject to advertising, because what happens then is it's lowest common denominator material. We've seen that with ITV to be honest with you. ITV used to be Uh, a channel that produced programs like world in action like the south bank show all those things have gone the children's television all the things expensive things have gone we've now got game shows and soap operas and stuff and the bbc still does have programs which are um you know if you like minority programs costing a lot of money a bit problems that are worthwhile having on like panorama i don't think it's right to have a license fee I think what should happen is there should be a, 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 an amount given by the government each year to the BBC as a public broadcaster to enable it to carry on broadcasting. That's the answer for the BBC. Abolish a licence fee and have central funded, uh, central government funding. People say, well, that gives the government too much power. Well, they've got too much power now. They set the licence fee. They determine whether it's there. And the BBC as is, is, is lost its mojo. And come back to your second point. It's lost its mojo in 2003 because 2003 was the Iraq war. And what happened in the Iraq war was that uh, we had the so-called Hutton inquiry afterwards, the death of David Kelly, one of my other books. And that so-called inquiry, which was non-statutory, by the way, Lord Hutton didn't bother looking to David Kelly's death. He was in the BBC versus the government. He was there as an establishment figure who has a record of supporting the government of the day. And so when he reported, he criticized the BBC heavily and let the government completely off the hook for everything. All the all the dodgy dossiers and so on were all forgotten about. Instead, we had the BBC criticised, and we ended up with Greg Dyke, the director general, and Gavin Davis, the chairman of the BBC, having to resign, and Andrew Gilligan, the reporter who had broken the story accurately, having to lose his job, and and the BBC then had the deputy chairman Richard Ryder throw away eighty years of BBC independence by coming out and apologising to the government of the day. Apologising for doing their job. And I thought, when I heard them, I thought, you, you have just thrown away <laughs> 80 years of independence by that statement. What on earth do you think you're doing? So, and the BBC's been frightened ever since of taking on the government of the day, not Labour Tory, no matter what colour it is, coalition, been frightened of taking on the government of the day. And they won't do it. And you see it now. They won't take on, they won't give airings to opinions which will upset the government. I, know, I don't know what people think about um, what's happening with the Tory government now, but, I mean, they've made mistake after mistake on this virus business, including giving a whole lot of contracts to their mates who knew nothing about it. Well, where's the BBC reporting of that? You don't hear it in the BBC. You might read about it in the Eye or the Guardian or even the mail actually, but you won't hear it in the BBC. They have lost their mojo. The Savile thing you mentioned, Jimmy Savile was known about years and years before he came out. Um, back in the 1980s, And I know this from my transport work. British Rail knew about Jimmy Savile. He used to be advertising, this is the age of the train. That was his campaign. He was pulled because British Rail was told about him interfering with dead bodies in the morgue at the hospital he worked at. so British Rail dropped him. He was never allowed on... um, uh, What's that? Children children relief thing. Uh, Comic Comic relief. relief. He was never allowed on that. Um, because it was known what he was like. So nobody was in any doubt of what Jimmy Savile was. And when the BBC produced um, a documentary, it was pulled. It was left to ITV, I think at the time, to, to broadcast a story about Jimmy Savile. Well, it's lost its backbone. And, you know, what the BBC should do now is get some investigative journalists back on board, cut the middle management, there's far too much of it, Cut the waste. There is waste. If I want to go to a BBC studio, they offer me a taxi both ways. I say, what about a train? I can get a train from my house to the studio. It's going to cost a tenth of the taxi. Well, we don't refund train fares. Well, i got them to refund mine eventually. But why should they keep offering taxes to me at vast cost? They should drop these taxis, the expensive uh, outgoings. You should cut the middle of management. People push paper around and get some investigative journalists on. That's what the BBC should do.
0: How much does the BBC cost to run each year?
1: Oh, I don't know. Millions and millions and millions. I don't, I don't begrudge them the money. I begrudge them how they use it. And I begrudge that they won't stand up and do some proper journalism if it's going to affect the government today. the day. There's people in the BBC I know who want to do that, and they're discouraged from doing so. How did Jimmy Savile get away with his crimes for so long? Well, because nobody wanted to take him on. He was too popular um he was seen to be a you know will fix it on tv he fixed it himself didn't he uh he was seen to be a a good time guy uh he was a kind of popular dj in the 1960s you know and he he had his friends with prince charles of course he advised prince charles on his marriage with with um diana for
0: god's sake how does a nobody from the north (coughs) a dj end up at the highest... I mean, we've seen on The Crown how hard it is to get to that level of royal access.
1: He also advised Charles and Camilla.
0: How does he get to that level of access?
1: I don't know. But anyway, he did. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, Charles sent him, you know, a couple of gifts and so on.
0: And, and so on, he was, he was friends with Charles. Well, don't... Wouldn't the royals, because they have to the screen visitors who allowed that level of access, wouldn't the royals have known... His history of what Well, they, they
1: had, I, I think, they knew of allegations, but I think Charles dismissed them as as kind of
0: people who felt, you know, jealous or something. I mean, I don't know. Was it acceptable, perhaps, because Lord Mountbatten, he had a lot of allegations about young boys?
1: Well, I don't know whether... Um, um, I, I, yeah, I, I can't think Charles would have been, you know, in any way happy or or, or or content with what Savile did. I just think Charles was naive and didn't believe the allegations made about Savile in his particular case. But he got away with it for a long time. There was also the suggestion that well, I mean, if he was guilty of these things, it would have come out. It didn't come out for 30, 40 years. And the idea, if a lot of people know something, it will come out is not true. You know, in my, mus- my days in the music business, when I was running record shops, you know, there were allegations about Jonathan King um, you know, driving at 10 miles an hour on his Rolls-Royce up the edge Road, picking up boys. You know, that was just said at the time. But it was many, many years later when he was charged with
0: anything. Yeah, we've interviewed a lot of people for our Savile documentary. It's four hours long. And we learned that Savile gave, like, weekly lunches to the police. Yes. And there was one person at the police jurisdiction in his area whereby if Savile committed any crimes in the whole country... They had to report it back to this police force. And that g- guy who took that report was Savile's friend. Yeah. So all those reports just disappeared. Yeah. That's how corrupt it was. Yeah. The role in exposing MPs' expenses and the importance of the Freedom of Information <laughs> Act.
1: Yes, I, I'm very proud of the fact, actually. Probably not necessarily good quality, but I'm proud of the <laughs> fact that um, I was the first person on, on day one of the Freedom of Information Act coming into force to table a Freedom of Information request about MP's expenses as an MP, because I knew some of the stuff that was going on. <laughs> I didn't realize what a can of worms it was going to be. I mean, I knew there were some problems with it, but I had no idea how bad it was. And uh, of course, I was not necessarily very popular with my fellow MPs for doing this. But actually, it was the right thing to do. It was corrupt. It was a misuse of public money. And actually, the system is a lot cleaner now. So, though it was damaging to MPs' reputations, and probably still is to some extent, the whole thing's been cleaned up a lot more now. So, that was the right thing to do. So, um, yeah. The Freedom of Information Act is essential in in a country. There's a way in which you prevent uh, corruption. If you can find out what people are doing, then they won't do it. If it's bad, if it's corrupt, if it's illegal, they won't do it. If you can't find out, then they may be tempted to carry on doing it. This is the same the case with the Royal Family. The Freedom of Information Act doesn't apply to the Royal Family in the same way they have exempted themselves from this, so we can't find out. The Royal Family's attitude, if something happens, which is dodgy, if there's some rotten wood there, they paint over it, they don't replace it, they paint over rotten wood in the Royal Family. But Freedom of Information Act now, you can find out what's happening with Parliament, with, with councils, with the NHS, with education system and so on, And it's much, much cleaner. And this country has been improved enormously as a consequence of that act. And by the way, Tony Blair said it was the worst thing he ever did,
0: which shows how good it was. (laughs) So when information is hidden, people like Julian Assange come along. What are your thoughts on his situation? Well,
1: he's been quite irresponsible, I think, in many ways. Some stuff that he released was good to release and should have been released but he was quite indiscriminate in what he put out. And a whole lot of essential activities involving our agents or American agents abroad defending our country and our values was compromised as a consequence of what Julian Assange did. So he needed to be far more selective in what he did. and That's, that's unfortunately what I feel about Julian Assange.
0: Would you rather see him extradited to America or Prince Andrew?
1: Well, I don't think, I don't, I don't think uh, Julian should be extradited because... Um, I mean, the, part of anything else, the Americans retain the death penalty, and we should not, we should not uh, extradite people who can be subject to capital punishment. Uh, that's a standard uh, approach that this country has rightly had over many years. Um, I don't think he should be extradited necessarily. I think he should be tried in this country for anything which people... You know, if the Americans got a case to bring, I think he should be tried in, this co- in the courts in this country.
0: What was it like meeting Mikhail Gorbachev?
1: I was very honored to meet Mikhail Gorbachev. He's an interesting guy, and he had with him the interpreter that I remember him having with him when uh, the TV pictures of him meeting Reagan and Reykjavik, same guy. And he was campaigning on the environment. And the tragedy of Mikhail Gorbachev was that he tried to modernize the Soviet Union, and did so in many ways, and in fact caused in some ways, or accelerated at least, the downfall of the Soviet Union. And of course, he's not forgiven for that in Moscow, And his popularity is is almost zero in in Russia these days. But actually, I think he did a huge amount for the world. And, you know, I'd like to think that he will be remembered in a favourable way. And you were there in a ministerial capacity? No, I was just an MP, actually, on that particular occasion. But um, I was very honoured to meet him. And and one of the great things about being an MP is you do meet people like that you wouldn't otherwise come across in life. And, you know, I remember going to... uh, uh, um, Uh, an event where Bill Clinton was speaking. And what amazed me about that was that as soon as he came in the room, the room was filled with his charisma in a way that uh, I found quite astonishing. You know, he just filled the room without doing anything. It's quite extraordinary. And, you know, so you do meet people. I mean, one of the most interesting people I met was the Russian ambassador at the UN uh, back in 1998, and he was this man who was just incredibly intelligent. And it's almost if like the chemical connections in your brain that form thoughts and add things up and cause you to speak and so on, the thought processes, you know, his chemical reactions did about three times anyone else's. I mean, what an, what a brain. So he was he was a most interesting character. Who was more charismatic, Bill Clinton or Paul McCartney? ha. <sighs> Well, um, charismatic in different ways they were. I mean, Bill Clinton was was able to fill the room with his charisma in a way that just extraordinary, just... uh, His persona was there. Paul McCartney, I like Paul McCartney. I've met him three or four times, and he actually, at one point, funded an animal welfare researcher for me in the House of Commons. Um, I think Paul McCartney's great, uh, not just musically, but just as a person. And uh, I met him in the House of Commons first time when he came to a lunch for vegetarian mps of which there weren't very many i was there and what i liked about that was that he went round the room and made sure he spoke to everybody and chatted everybody and answered their questions and it's almost as if brian epstein's training had was still there and there are so many people like that you know rock musicians who are just so arrogant and just i am the be all and end all and you know i want um you know shrimps from thailand flowing across to Arizona or somewhere you know you just these these people who've got these pretensions and Paul McCartney wasn't like that he was just an ordinary guy and just very friendly and uh, you know met him a couple of times subsequently I just think uh, and I'll tell you what he did do um, when I um, when I brought my first album out um, I sent him a copy well, I dropped a copy in actually to his um, offices in Soho Square because uh, I was just round right a the corner of where I was and uh, said here's a, here's a you know thanks for um, supporting me on Animal Welfare stuff. He's my CD. Hope you like it. And he sent me a handwritten note back, you know, which I've now got. And, you know, so there's no need for him to do that. And I just, such a nice, such a nice man. And uh, so, yeah. So, of the two of them, I think I'd rather have Paul McCartney. Was Dolly Parton an ordinary woman? Dolly Parton, I went to an event with her. Um, and she was, again, you know, a- a admirer, because mm. what she was doing was spending her time trying to get books to children who otherwise wouldn't have books to read and she had this this kind of structure particularly worked in america i think of handing out books to children and she gave this rather delightful presentation and speech and i just i'd never known her beforehand i really warmed to her actually as a person when i saw her speak and um there's also a quote of hers i quite like which is that um she said and i'm not doing an american accent by the way but she said the way i see it if you want the rainbow, you have to put up with the rain. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so I was telling you earlier about my Arizona incarceration yeah, story yeah. for ecstasy trafficking. When I got back, I think it was Gatwick Airport my parents picked me up at, and then they took me to my sister's house, and I was interviewed um, shortly thereafter in a, in a BBC studio by Eddie Merr, what are your thoughts on Eddie Oh, I like Eddie
1: Mayer. I think he's a great broadcaster. And um, when I was um, in my in my parliamentary time, it was one of my, it was my one of my famous written questions, which caused Peter Mandelson to resign uh, about the Hinduja passport affair. Uh, it's always good, I found, to ask a question to which you knew the answer already, mm-hmm. um, but it turned out that that particular question. Uh, which was what representations he'd made about the Hinduja passport applications to the Home Office, was the one that forced him to resign. And Jack Straw to his credit, um, either because he wanted to do things properly or didn't like Mandelson one of the two, insisted the question was answered, although Mandelson tried to get it suppressed. And he had to resign as a consequence of that. Um, Now, after that, Eddie Mayer came down to my my house or my office in Lewis and interviewed me, so that's the first time I met him. And I immediately warmed to him. I thought he was he was great. And uh, we talked about music as much as anything else. Um, so that was good. And then I loved his interview with Boris Johnson, going back a bit of bit time. I don't even know that one, Sean, but um, you know, Boris had done all these dodgy things in his past, which, of course, the, the right-wing press was very happy to forget about. And Eddie Mayer, with a bit of guts um, on the BBC, said... Um, he, he, he reeled off some of these things and his first question was, Mr. Johnson, you're a nasty piece of work, aren't you? It was a great question. <laughs> and, of course, Boris Johnson was not expecting this. And he got a really rough time from Eddie Mayor, but all factually based. My oh, well, dad's going to love this story. Shout out to Derek. <laughs> <laughs> and he's, it's still there. It's on the internet. Have a listen to it. It's a great interview. Of course, Eddie's nast- now gone to BBC to LBC.
0: What nasty things was Boris up to?
1: He was, um, he was um, talking to his mate, uh, Darius Guppy about um, Darius Guppy I think wanted to on this phone call wanted to uh, get someone beaten up and wanted to borrow to give him a phone number that's one of the things <laughs> <Chief>. <laughs> so one of your political heroes is Helen Suzman. Helen Sussman yes you never heard of her? no no well uh, Helen Sussman was um, uh, back in the 1960s uh, and 70s I think in apartheid South Africa it mm. was a horrible place to be if you weren't um one of the Afrikaans running the place, and it was also a horrible place to be a woman. And she was at one point, I think, both the only woman in, in, in the South African Parliament and the only Liberal. She was elected as a Liberal in Cape Town, and she was, she was the opposition. And she saw her role not simply as defending Liberal values, which in many cases were my values but also in, in, in saying I'm also the MP for all these people who haven't got a vote, all these blacks and all these Asians and so on, I'm, I'm their MP as well. And, you know, in that situation, it requires tremendous courage and stamina and, and uh, backbone and everything else to be able to deal with that as she dealt with it. And tremendously courageous woman. And, you know, you, you can look on the one side, there's Nelson Mandela who did what he did and got incarcerated for many, many years. He took that approach... He thought that was the right way to do. And I'm not saying it was wrong, but and obviously he came out and was a wonderful president at the end of it. She took a different approach. She got inside the system and fought it from within inside. And the Afrikaners, you know, were you know, tolerated her in the sense that if she they left her they couldn't stop her speaking, they couldn't stop her putting question time and everything else. She behaved as a parliamentarian in that most hostile environment. And I just think that um, You know, you don't choose the situations to be in. You don't choose what happens. You don't choose to be a member of the French Resistance in the Second World War. You know, you just end up in a situation where you have to deal with it. And she came out, I think, with flying colours. I just think that she's, um, you know, she's my political hero in terms of just uh, dealing with that situation
0: with, with the courage she did. I know on previous interviews with you, Norman, you requested to speak about the Chinese situation, but we we were squeezed for time. Yeah, so we can make up for that now. You have a role in standing up for Tibet. Um, what happened there then?
1: Well, I've been, I was for about I don't know how long, fifteen years or thereabouts, president of Tibet Society. Tibet Society was formed this country by, actually, largely by my friend Ricky Hein Chambers, who's still chairman now. He's given in mean, let's call it out for Ricky. He's given mm-hmm. sixty years of his life to. Tibet as much as anything else no one has no ever heard of him he's got an MBE for it I think but I mean Ricky's a great guy and, and he, you know uh, and I wanted to help him with that and when you read about Tibet in the papers there was a of journalist still around I think called Jonathan Mirsky he's like right, the Observer and I read about this in the 1980s I thought this is terrible you know why is no one talking about this why is no one dealing with this appalling abuse of human rights happening in Tibet which was tantamount is tantamount to genocide where not only is the Dalai Lama forced to flee the country, there's been an illegal, illegal invasion of Tibet, which was an independent country, with its own foreign policy, its own, its own government, its own currency, its own stamps. Every measure of an independent country, Tibet was there. And we know, by the way, better than anybody else, because the British, as usual, going around the world trying to sign up trade deals with people, still doing it now, it seems, uh, we were there signing deals with the Tibetans, you know, signing conventions with them and treaties You know, the Chinese weren't part of that. This is historical fact. The Chinese don't want to admit, you know, there were treaties signed between Britain and Tibet. The Chinese were nowhere near them because Tibet was an independent country. And it was invaded in 1959. Um, It's illegally occupied now by China. And the Chinese are now, ever since then, have been trying to eradicate everything Tibetan. Mm. Uh, You know, there were literally over 6,000 monasteries during Mao Zedong's time, they were reduced to 14. They were just destroyed. Um, the, nowadays, the Tibetan language is discouraged in schools. Uh, everything's run on Han Chinese. If you don't speak Han Chinese, you don't get anywhere in society. Uh, people get prosecuted for having a picture of the Dalai Lama. Uh, they get arrested if they turn up to a Tibetan celebration of some sort. Um, they are monitored day to day. Chinese card rays, Han Chinese, Chinese are put in the houses to deliver them to make sure that they are sound. Um, they cannot phone abroad without being arrested for dealing with, um, you know, people external to the Chinese Empire. This is what they have to tolerate. So we've now seen with the Uyghurs, um, the Muslim community in uh, in uh, in northwest China, in Xinjiang or East Turkestan as they call it, um, they're having the same thing as the Tibetans have always had, except they've also got concentration camps. And millions of people put through these concentration camps. Children taken away from their parents mm-hmm. and brought up to believe in this garbage that the Communist Party in, in Beijing mm-hmm. um, offers them. And and the concentration of power in one hand, in, in one person's hand now, in a way that's not been the case since Mao Zedong. The Chinese government is behaving in a, in a totally inhumane way. It's committing genocide. I don't use the word lightly. I use it actually accurately. It's committing genocide in Xinjiang against the Muslims, and genocide in Tibet against Tibetans. And the world, up until recently, had done nothing about it. And the world needs to stand up and do something about it. And they haven't done anything about it because China is too powerful. China is a very, very big country. But we need to do something about it. We cannot let this go on. This is an affront to civilization, what this Chinese government's doing. And uh, it needs to be faced. What they're doing is, is no is no better than dictators uh, and, uh, and autocrats down the decades. In many ways, it's quite worse. And it's worse because partly because they have the technical capability now to monitor every citizen on a day-to-day basis. And, and, and that's just absolutely shocking. And I'm just appalled by how they behave. And I feel very sorry for the Chinese people because they've fed a pack of lies about their history. Uh, they're not allowed to know what the situation really is. And when you do find out, as they do often when they come, for example, over here. They're ashamed. But they won't, they won't say anything because they're monitored by the Chinese embassy when they're in this country. If they say anything, their family suffers back in China.
0: That's how it is. And you've described hosting the Dalai Lama at the Albert Hall as your most nervous ever task. Yeah,
1: that's true, Sean. Why were you so nervous? Because um, I've got huge respect for the Dalai Lama as an individual and his message of peace and non-violence and uh, the way he's trying to not just help his own people over the years but also to go way beyond that to give out messages of compassion and love and you know and therefore when he came to the Hall as uh, the invitation to Tibet Society I was president at the time it was my job to not just introduce him but to conduct a Q&A with him afterwards. He's the most interesting character. You to go off in all sorts of different directions and you never quite know what his answers are going to be. <laughs> and I had to conduct this Q&A. And I wanted it to be a success, not for me, but for him and for what he stood for. And I wanted to get it right. And it wasn't the fact that I was in front of thousands of people because, as a politician, you're used to that, actually. I was, <laughs> that's not a problem for me. But what was a problem for me, in a sense, was... He was this figure I had tremendous respect for, and I wanted to make sure the event went off well for him and his message. And that was what was made me nervous.
0: Just one final question then before we wrap it up with your music videos. Yes, there's going to be music videos at the end of this. Great. Um, Gareth Williams, what happened to him? <laughs>
1: he was the um, MI6 agent who was found in about 2010 in a bag. In his flat. Do you remember this? In a hold-all. Briefcase in or something. A hold-all. In a hold-all. hold-all. Sports hold-all. How did he get in there? <coughs> well, according to the police, he put himself in it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Same police off the Epstein case.
0: Well, interesting
1: <laughs> enough that, um, I mean, he was found there, and, and uh, the circumstances were bizarre. I mean, first of all, he was an MR6 agent, so the idea of suddenly kill himself is, is slightly incredulous. <laughs> but if you killed yourself, you wouldn't put yourself in a bag. Um, the heating had been turned up full. He'd been left for a week... Um, so the body was decayed, why would you turn the heating up full in summer? Um, you know, why would, if it, in his situation, why would you, A, want to kill yourself, B, trying to force yourself into a bag, C, turn the heating up full, so the, so the so the body decays, D, shut all the doors. I mean, none of this makes any sense. Um, What does make sense is uh, the way perhaps he might have been killed by some external force, like the Russians, because the Russians have spent a lot lot of the last 10 years going around bumping off people in London uh, and not being held to account for it. So this is the most likely outcome of, of what the explanation was. It's also incredible that he was due to chair meetings at MI6. He didn't turn up. He was known to be punctilious and punctual, he didn't turn up. And apparently, no one did anything about it for, for a week. I just don't believe that. I believe that what happened was that he was bumped off by the Russians, that mi 6 did find out, but they didn't necessarily want to uh, admit this right away because they wanted time to try and deal with it because there was some suggestion that um, there might not be in a mole inside GCHQ and they wanted to try and find that person. So, um, you know, I don't believe mi 6 for that. Um, but I do blame the Russians. Um, there was a piece written, I wrote a whole piece on this in the Mail on Sunday, and it's still online, so if, if your viewers want to find it, they can find an article by me on uh, on the, the Mail on Sunday from about August last year on it.
0: Are we going to get a book out of you, The Strange Death of
1: Gareth Williams? Maybe, who knows? <laughs> um, I did quite a lot in the Mail on Sunday article. Um, but this is this is... I mean, what what there is... Um, I mean, in a, way, in a way it's been covered, I've covered it in that article, and also there's a very good journalist called Heidi Blake uh, who worked for BuzzFeed um, who uh, produced a book on all these Russian assassinations in London. So in a way it's been covered. But, um, you know, again, people don't necessarily know what's going on. The curious thing was that it took, um, you know, Theresa May to actually make a fuss about Salisbury before anything was done about the Russians.
0: So... The Dr. David Kelly case is really fascinating. If people want to find out about that, this book is available worldwide on Amazon. And also we've got a 20 to 30-minute clip up on the channel. I'll put Norman's playlist in the description box below this video so you can see the previous work that we've done with Norman that has been broken down into various clips as well. So if you're specifically interested in any of those areas. And um, like I said, we are going to finish... We'll, we'll put like two of your music videos on the end of this video. Okay, uh, We'll let you select those then. Um, I was trying to, can I say something about music? Yourself? Yeah, I was going to ask you that next. Know, yeah, yeah, go ahead. go just Ask it. me what you want to ask Yeah, how, how did you get into that,
1: and, you know? Well, look, I mean, music has been tremendously important in my life. It was there before my politics and it's there after my politics. And uh, I think music makes a black and white world colour. And I'm tremendously grateful to, um, you know, people like The Beatles, actually, who've who just made my life richer (laughs) by what they did. And uh, not just the Beatles, I mean, a whole lot of music, but uh, I really love my music. I, at the moment, I do three radio shows a week um, on my local FM station. Do
0: want uh, to say what they're called? People might want
1: to tune uh, in. It, yeah, I mean, Sea Haven FM, it's there, and any programme is available for a month afterwards on the internet, on a Listen Again facility. I do two on Sundays. I do one called uh, Pick Up The 70s, which is straight 70s hits, largely. I then do uh, an hour of Ain't Nothing But The Blues, which speaks for itself, and then on Monday evenings I do one called The Hidden Sixties, when I pick up 60s material, people wouldn't have heard you know, EP tracks or B-signs or something else from that wonderful decade, and I do that, I've been doing that for about 10 years, wow. so I love my music, and part of what it was, was um, part of what I did was run music shops, I ran 26 shops in, in, uh, in central London and, and beyond in the uh, turn of the 70s to the 80s, and uh, that was a great time for music of course Punk and new wave and all that, as well as disco and Boney am and everything else at the same time. <laughs> so all that was happening then. It's time when singles sold most, uh, top sellers, top sellers.
0: Yeah, all those sort of things.
1: <laughs> or oh, the Baron Knights version. There's a dentist in Birmingham. <laughs> <laughs> all that was happening at the time. Um, so a great time for music, very inventive, and um, so I ran a, ran all music shops, and I, I got a, a great knowledge of music from doing that, of course, and I began to appreciate music beyond the narrow confines i'd known beforehand so in almost every genre now i can find something i like which is great so it's tremendously liberating that experience for me and then i started recording music myself uh i I had a band which we we have had on and off for 25 years called the reform club and uh, we used to do with just covers and then i thought to myself i'd like to do something else and i didn't want to do more gigs, particularly, because it was quite difficult as an MP, let alone a minister, to start doing gigs, because people have this idea that ministers shouldn't do rock music. You know, had it been in a string quartet, it would be all right, but doing rock music probably wasn't all right. So um, I thought, I know the answer to this. We'll go into the studio. We'll do some recorded music. So uh, a friend of mine, Mike Phipps, and I sat down and wrote this album, um, and it came out to quite a good reviews, actually. Uh, in most cases, apart from some mean guy in the telegraph, i his name. Um, everybody else was fine about it. And uh, the single, um, Piccadilly Circus, um, actually did very well. And a uh, video to go with it. it was sort of, well, that's one of the ones, Sean, we all split up, I think. Absolutely. And, um, and then, because uh, so I went well, I did another album. And an EP then subsequently. And then, um, for a change, I did uh, a solo album, um, which came out about two or three years ago. So, I love my music. And it's
0: great. Are you a good dancer, Norman? Can you bust out some moves? No, I'm a terrible dancer. <laughs>
1: <laughs> We're not going to get to finish this with doing
0: the twist. then. <laughs> oh, no, no.
1: There's enough... I've seen enough twisting in politics without doing twisting in music.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, huge thank you to Norman for coming on. If you want to show your appreciation, please go down the description box and check out his books and his links. Huge thank you to all the new subscribers subscription logo is down there and huge thank you to people who've gone down and clicked on our socials and donation links and everything else so we can keep these podcasts coming at you in high quality studios like this are we going to do the uh the elbow bump is that all we're last
1: are we like that okay (laughs) no
0: (laughs) twist
2: an envoy for peace but i got war on my mind i've dealt with iraq i'm shafting iran syria watch you behind i travel in the lap of comfort i recline in your best hotels I'm calling for more room service time, holding calls from Israel. I got the USA online too, as well. I am a man. Disagree about love, peace, and hope. But in the meantime, now my career's doing rather well. My lecture tour on human rights is now sold out for 14 nights. My agent needs my man was tonight. CNN wants serial rights. To bring peace to the Middle East They need more guns, rockets and bombs I pray oppression won't cease But some of you ask of me What do I do with these huge amounts of money? I accumulate, I stuff them in offshore bank accounts Can you feel the tension rising on the streets as the shadows grow long? I am the shapeless, nameless, blameless, twister of right and of wrong. I'm still an envoy for peace. And i got war on my mind I've dealt with Iraq Gaza's on fire The West Bank's not far behind Oh, I travel in the lap of comfort I recline in your best hotels I'm calling for more room service Now I'm holding calls from Israel I got the USA online too as well I'm gonna blow those bastards back to hell